I remember seeing, I came across a movie, um, Hurt Locker, and there mm-hmm. was, and they, they really, um, uh, like showcased a lot of like, like up close IDs and, and a lot, a lot of terrorists, um, I guess sort of how they, you know, how they operate and how they pr- produce these, these devices. And it, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that's pretty much how we approach it. And like, ah, whoever, you know, however that was directed, they actually did a very good job in, in trying to highlight and, and capture that, you know, sort of how that's all developed. And that's the reason why our, our um, directorate is called the Forensic Exploitation Directorate because we try to make use of every piece of, of forensic material uh, and use it against them. You know, try to develop a little bit more, uh, more of a characteristic, a biometric characteristic to identify these bad people. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna, as they discuss all things ORAU through interviews with our experts who provide innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, how we're impacting an ever-changing world, and our commitment to our community. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Good Wednesday morning and welcome to this episode of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. I am genuinely excited about this episode because I am learning about something that I've understood ORU was involved in on the periphery. Um, I think most of our employees might be in that spot as well. But today we are talking to um, DNA forensic examiner Sean Crabb, and he's going to tell us a little bit about um, what he does, how he and ORU supports the Defense Forensic Science Center, and um, all that encompasses the great work that he's doing. Sean Crabb, welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your background is, and how you got to ORU. Sure. Um, You know, I was born and raised in in Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii, and I've always had a had a desire to answer a lot of questions. The curiosity is what kind of drove me to to aspire in sciences. And you know, I graduated from University of Hawaii, uh, degree in biology. Um, but more, more at the time, the uh, emphasis was in biotech and molecular bio because I understood that the landscape in that type of industry was uh, was becoming was becoming something. And so, in that path, in, in that career, or more of a student career path. Um, I was part of a bunch of research, research teams in molecular bio and public health. Um, before uh, one of my colleagues joined the Honolulu Police Department in 2008, and he said that I'd be a great fit. And that's kind of the, the path that I took uh, that got me into the forensic world. And so in 2008, I joined Honolulu Police Department, and I was a criminalist there as a DNA analyst, where I worked on casework and databasing. Uh, DNA databasing, and uh, up until 2012, I joined the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, as an examiner there. And I took a different paths, um, career paths in that in that role. And in, up until 2019, June 2019, um, I joined ORAL um, through the word of a few colleagues uh, that I worked that I worked with um, in the Bureau at Quantico as well as in the New York Field Office. 
Um, I've heard a lot of great things about Aura, and even to this day, even speaking with my colleagues that I work side by side with, um, hear a lot of great, great um, commentaries and, and experiences with Aura, and I was very happy to join them, and I'm still very happy to to be part of that organization and and to continue to um, do the work that I do in, in the sciences, um, particularly the, the, the forensic biology sciences. Awesome. Um, so I. I realize you don't live in East Tennessee necessarily, but um, <laughs> it's got to be a far cry from Honolulu, Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know the um, I get that I get that quite a bit about it's like, well, would you do Hawaii? You know, you've been bouncing around in these major cities, and yeah, that's the truth. Um, I've always had a propensity to and curiosity to travel and see different parts of the country, and and hopefully eventually the world. Um, but that's kind of what drove me to want to, you know, take a leap of faith and, and say, all right, you know, I'm still, I'm still young. I want to see more. And that's kind of, um, stepping foot off, you know, leaving Hawaii, not just to go to the West coast, but to the far East, <laughs> East right, coast. Right. um, you know, going from the pineapple to the big apple, um, <laughs> and now, <laughs> you know, now into now, now where I'm at in, um, uh, Forest Park, or it's just south of Atlanta, not too far south of Atlanta, about 20 miles south. Okay. Um, but that's kind of, that's where I'm at currently. Okay. Um, and the work that you do for ORU supports the Defense Forensic Science Center. Talk about what that is, what you do, and, and I, I guess all of that. Okay. So the Defense Forensic Science Center, um, that was... So that's under the uh, Department of Army's uh, Criminal Investigative um, Division. Okay. And uh, across all branches of government, uh, all branches of um, services, armed services, that the, the Defense Forensic Science Center is is the lead in uh, performing uh, forensic science, uh, particularly for um, for all branches of uh, all branches of services. Now, okay. I have to. I wanted to emphasize that. I want to emphasize that the type of service that we do is not entirely homeland. That's actually the that that's actually the FBI's <laughs> domain. What we're concerned with is providing the forensic sciences for anything related to the branches of services, both um, stateside as well as in theater or globally, like well, the armed forces uh, out in. Um, out uh, deployed overseas. Okay. Yeah, so where we fall in the Defense Forensic Science Center is um, there are three different, um, I would say, supporting units or more, it's more close to the directorates. Uh, formerly, uh, it used to be or the U.S. Army Criminal Investigative Laboratory, Investigation Laboratory. That's now one, that's one, that's one supporting unit. Okay. The other supporting unit is the Forensic Exploitation Directorate, which is what I'm assigned to, who I'm assigned to. And the third um, subordinate is the Office of Quality Initiatives and Training Unit. So these three components kind of fall on the, on, on the, under the umbrella of the Defense Forensic Science Center. And we're all located at Forest Park, Georgia, and Fort Gillum. Okay. And the difference between Eustace Hill and uh, FXD or the Forensic Exploitation Directorate is is that UCL is, is stateside. They look at um, 
they support investigations and drug operations, um, domestic operations stateside. Whereas the forensic exploitation director at FXD, which is what I'm assigned to, uh, we, we actually go overseas. Okay. We perform very similar similar um, services, except we're scalable and we're modular, and that we go to these sites of theater, um, that is Kuwait, Afghanistan, Bahrain, uh, Djibouti, uh, more recently Honduras, but that's that's a plan and change right now. That's plan changing. Um, and uh, we basically provide different types of forensic services uh, and, and we tailor it as needed. We don't send all capabilities. We, we send only the capabilities that's requested and that's required uh, to, to drive and support these uh, overseas um, forensic investigations. Okay. Um, so what kinds of capabilities um, if you're going overseas to do an investigation, I guess, what are you, what are you doing? What are the capabilities okay. that you um, deploy when you go to Djibouti or wherever, wherever it is that you're deployed to? Yeah. So when we deploy we, um, to whatever um, uh, uh, theater locations that, we get, that we're assigned, uh, we typically would send out teams that comprise of personnel um, in specialized uh, disciplines. So for typically what we would see is folks in chemistry, folks from DNA, including myself, uh, latent prints, um, we have some firearms and other operations, like operation and logistics personnel and IT as well. We all go as one team uh, to our respective locations. Um, and again, depending on what types of services and what types of um, I think we call it SMEs or subject matter experts are required to go. Uh, that's the teams that that would comprise. I mean, that's the person that's uh, the composition that would comprise of each team. Um, I'm I have a background in DNA, and that is that is uh, basically the that look that expertise that component would go up in teams. Um, there's usually a pair of us that go up there at least, depending on. The workload, um, and in, in this case, in Djibouti, uh, East Africa, Djibouti, there's going to be, we expect to have two uh, DNA folks going up there. Okay. Um, and uh, like, a, like for example, in, in, con in con contrast, in Afghanistan, they have, I believe there's four DNA because the workload is, at that time, um, voluminous in a way and so there there are a lot of like long days um whereas newer labs newer sites where we're basically you know demonstrating our capabilities or show we're showcasing and, and trying to uh trying to convey the message of what we do um so that we can make everyone there aware that hey this is our services this is how we can support and drive your, your current investigations um, so we're kind of starting up with Djibouti, and what we expect is to ramp up operations there over time. Because as I as I recall, the team that I'm on is the second team to go up, and we do six months deployment. So the DNA footprint in Djibouti is very, very new. I don't know how to ask this without hopefully, you know, um, I don't know, being too morbid or. But as a as a DNA examiner, are you? Um, Helping identify casualties? Are you oh, helping? Yes. Um, Excellent. So, 
I, I think I, I see where you're going with this. And so the short answer is yes. Um, a lot of the folks overseas, we're not, uh, a lot of the subjects overseas, we're not, what we typically don't see are, are, are subjects that are involved in you know, the, the types of criminal activities that we see stateside. Uh, we don't, we're not necessarily coming across like, you know, for example, sex assaults, sex assaults or robberies. <clears throat> Right. Typically, the subjects that they encounter are often uh, are often involved in in manufacturing IEDs or improvised explosive devices, and gotcha. it is yes. So, and, and thinking of the sites that that were um, that we have a presence in, that is Kuwait, Afghanistan, um, Bahrain, uh, now Djibouti. Um, a lot of those actors overseas um, they like to do a lot of bad things, and a lot of and mo- the majority of them are. Uh, terrorist related. So it's typical that we would t- receive evidence that are either components of or um, either that function or that didn't function uh, related to the production of um, IEDs. And so uh, typically what we would see incoming is like uh, as evidence is um, like wire twists, uh, pressure plates, um, contact, like pieces of um, the pressure plates that would, would be in contact with each other, uh, and then the occasional water bottles and and you know, electric tape that would be discovered and that would be recovered in like caches, mm-hmm. uh, like stockpiles. That has to be really <clears throat> both really interesting on the one hand because I'm thinking you know there are movies and TV yeah. shows and, you know, <laughs> um, that you know people I'm sure are familiar with of you know. Of, forensic DNA examiners trying mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, who did this, but also very challenging, um, obviously, because you're, you know, you're trying to track down someone who might be in the wind. Right, um, right, right. So to speak. And, 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 and to add to kind of what you mentioned about like mo- what you see in movies and all, um, I remember seeing, I came across a movie, um, Hurt Locker, and there mm-hmm. was, and they, they really um, uh, like showcased a lot of like, like up close IDs and, and a, lot, a lot of terrorists, um, I guess sort of how they, you know, how they operate and how they pr- produce these, these devices and the way, the, the way they're handled, um, even from a recovery standpoint is, is basically how we would approach sampling, uh, yeah, sampling and evidence, you know, in, in the, in the, in the effort to obtain some kind of touch DNA. Um, and from like twisting wires to, you know, wrapping around, wrapping around, uh, uh, like a, like a screw or even holding on like, you know, the foam pads that's involved in pressure plates. Cause when, when someone steps on a pressure plate, it makes contact and that will complete the circuit, which would then trigger, a you know, explosion mm-hmm. or ignition. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like, it, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that's pretty much how we approach it. And like, ah, whoever, you know, however that was directed, they actually did a very good job in, in trying to highlight and, and capture that, you know, sort of how that's all developed. And that's the reason why our our um, directorate is called the Forensic Exploitation Directorate, because we try to make use of every piece of, of forensic material uh, and use it against them, you know, try to develop a little bit more, uh, more of a characteristic or biometric characteristic to identify these bad people. And I can get into that later on uh, shortly about how we, 
how we, we turn, you know, we actually leverage that information and then feed that into the bigger picture, the bigger machine. <laughs> I, <laughs> wow. It, it's just mind blowing. It's, it's very cerebral, right? Or, to be honest. talking to somebody who's, <laughs> whose work is, you know, very highly skilled, but also shown very dangerous. I mean, Yes. I'm assuming there's a yes, in fact, that's there's a, a big team. level of danger <laughs> in the work that you do. There is. In fact, um, we have a triage team that uh, that's always with us on theater and, and part of our teams. Uh, and what they do is any of an attempt that's recovered by like service servicemen, servicemen and women, mm-hmm. um, it comes into our I guess uh, into our domain. And our triage is one that makes sure they ensure that the devices that we receive are are rendered safe, effectively. Um, they go through x-rays, you know, they have these personnel who's part of our, part of the FSC. Uh, they, they have the experience um, they as, as um, EODs, explosive oriented uh, device um, personnel, where they've had the experience to, to handle explosives and, and to render it safe. And so that when rendered safe, then they process document and then send it out to uh, the different types of discipline that can can further exploit that. You know, they can once it's dismantled, then we can take it apart. Uh, or they can take it apart, and then we we can step in and collect either fingerprints or DNA, or we, the chemistry folks can they can identify what substances are used um, to to manufacture these IDs, and all of that kind of funnels back into the case report or case file, and and, and provides a more complete picture of of how was you know how the IED was manufactured, uh, what what components were used in in the production in its production, um, and from a biometric standpoint perspective, um, are there any profiles, DNA profiles that can be used? Um, uh, you know, were they complete? Were they partial? You know, were, were there was a mixture? Um, have we seen this profile before? Are they uploaded into a database of, of known standards? Can we make associations with? you know, with, with the profiles that were team. So mm-hmm. from a larger picture, this actually paints a lot of new and more technical information that can feed into in, into operations and that say, hey, um, and this is the big question is, like, how does this fit into intelligence is, well, we have a profile or profile obtained from evidence. Have we seen this profile before? Meaning have we, do we have, have we seen this profile before recovered from different items of evidence at different places at different points in time. And of these profiles, have they hit with our known stamp, our known reference of databases? Because not only are we doing casework, um, uh, casework uh, like analysis of DNA analysis, but we're also doing databasing. So in these countries or in these countries that we we know that they, there's activities there, there's criminal terrorist activities there. Um, our armed court, our servicemen and women, they are out there collecting known reference standards. That's different from, that's different from evidentiary um, material. They're collecting, they're lining up people who at one point or another you know, may have in, engaged in criminal or terrorist activity, but they're known, they're known folks. So okay. we line them up, collect DNA, in, buckles, in the form of buckle swabs, we you know, to marry that with their, their, um, 
you know, bio, you know, biographical information, you know, they have like the biometrics, like fingerprints, um, the first name, last name, whatever any identifying numbers that they have. And then that's all married into a database. And then that DNA along with their, that other data along with compared to the DNA from the recovered evidence uh, is then compared. And if there's a match, which we have had success in the past, uh, then that allows us to make uh, uh, an, uh, an identity or an association with uh, DNA recovered at crime scene to, to known DNAs uh, residing in the database. Wow. And what's really cool about this, and I think this is the part where I feel like I have a little bit uh, more clear understanding of the bigger impact because my time with the FBI from a counterterrorism standpoint mm -hmm. and working in the laboratory division in Quantico um, is that we can see movement, meaning that if we are starting to see the, the similarities of the profiles light up, you know, or, you know, recovered in different types of evidence at different points in time and different places and and we're hitting against the same individual or individuals, then what we can sort of deduce from that is create a timeline with some kind of trajectory, meaning that that we can map out like where this individual who's producing these IEDs is is lighting up in different recovery points and you know different parts of the country or in different countries, and that information, you know, because they were at one point sampled, you know, from an I guess you know lined up and sampled. Um, <laughs> with their biographical, with their with their biometric information, then that can that can feed into all right. We see this individual; he's sitting up in these places in this direction. You know that can eventually feed into uh, you know um, um, military movements and, and and to and to incorporate that kind of uh, information into where they want to go. So there's a lot of um there, there there's a lot of uh, it's very reactive, but as much as we try to be proactive, you know, this is very, um, we have to move fast for that just because, you know, we don't expect anyone to be sitting down at, you know, just something that we expect there to be a lot of mobility with the with bad people. Right. I, I get to see, like, from overseas and, and all of that and how that funds into the big operating uh, on an intelligence scale, where that goes, because seeing it from the FBI's end, um, and working in the lab division and, and you know, taking part in seeing how other units leverage that information. It's, it's, great to, it's great to see the work that, that we do, that the Bureau does, other agencies and from other departments do, and how that funnels into bigger operations uh, in, in identifying and apprehending and eventually capturing and or neutralizing you know, the bad people, the bad people that are really doing you know bad things that want to cause harm to to the U.S. and, and, and you know mm -hmm. the person that's you know part of the U.S. you know citizen or a family member. It's it's very it's real. And you're helping. Basically, what your work does is help build the help put together the puzzle of the who and the where. Yes. Yeah, and so. it's it's not like on TV where you're like the forensic examiner is the guy that collars the you know <laughs> you're helping you're you're helping the intelligence folks basically figure out who it is so they can do the intelligence side of the job right yes yes we we provide so from a DNA standpoint we provide uh, a a, bio, a unique biometric of 
who these individual individuals are um, uh, and how the hat, that, that element uh, su supports the bigger case, the, the bigger picture. Um, there are other components that add to it, but DNA is so specialized. We have such very highly sensitive equipment and, and instrumentation, and then we have to go through so much, um, you know, that, you know, validation and quality control, quality assurance, quality control procedures that we want to make sure that what we're getting is, is you know, it's, it's reliable, it's accurate, and that, you know, we have we have controls and we have big reason why we're accredited is because we can demonstrate these types of quality, the types of quality of work that we do. Okay. Um, it's, not, it's not like the wild, wild west where we're just kind of running things and we're not really substantiating or how, how do we get the results and what does it mean? Like we, we can answer those questions. But part of the other little more, uh, the exciting part is, is that we get to, we get to be in a position to really share and i love these opportunities that that you know that we're doing right now is we get to sh not just showcase but also explain to you how this can uh, enhance or augment inv investigations and how the types of findings that we have the success that we've seen um gives a, a a gives more weight into where the investigation is is at and and the type of information that can be uh, determine and the conclusion that comes out of reports, um, okay. how that can further give more, more, I guess, credence or more value to the investigation as a whole. It sounds like extremely important work. Um, when we were talking about um, this, setting up this interview, you, you gave me an optional question, but that was relevant about why, <laughs> when we were sort of going back and forth to schedule this, why your follow-up response to my email was so late. So I want to know. Okay. <laughs> so I had to turn that in because I was, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I told you, oh, you know, I'll get, uh, I'll respond back to you, you know, if not tonight, then by Friday. But I was so exhausted Friday because, and it's funny, it's funny because it fits right into what we do. It's not like we, you go overseas and we just do, we just do, you know, work, you know, nine to five. Right. It's, we do when we need it. We do it. If there's a big volume, there was no, there's no end until there was like no cases. But there's all something to do. Um, part of the realities of being part of the FXD is that um, we're not only are we operating stateside, but we're also supporting our partners, our, of the team. Because at any given point, there are three teams that are overseas and one team stateside and we all and we're always going through rotations so what we've been doing uh while stateside is we've been providing support to our other teams uh, that are in you know camp Arafan, kuwait um Bar mirford in, in afghanistan um, bahrain uh djibouti or parts of djibouti and even to a lesser extent under us but we provide that kind of technical we provide technical support we we support um also support uh, sending out supplies uh, as needed. Uh, we also coordinate a lot of the service, uh, the service technicians to come out and 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 uh, basically work on any issues that can't be resolved just from telephone calls. And so what I, what I was doing was on Friday um, just kind of sprung up on me, but um with all this covid you know teleworking and on-site folks you know we're, we're really reduced down to like 30 25 percent staff so there are basically only three of us at the lab <laughs> and 
And what that meant was, all right, end up escorting two of our service, um, our service technicians for our, our instruments, our genetic analyzers. And these are expensive pieces of equipment. I mean, they're, they cost us, each one costs as much as a, as a down payment for a house, wow. single family home. And yeah, they're very, very sensitive, but very expensive. And we have about four of those. And um, each of those had different issues that were sent back from our teams overseas. And we're working on them and helping them out. And same time, I was doing other things in the lab in order to help them, you know, in order to help them streamline their uh, servicing because it was at the end of the week. And so um, kind of going back and forth. Um, and I was just, you know, that, that really was a 14 hour day. And I, I was just too exhausted. But then the reality is that this is a, this is a common thing because what happens in overseas is what was not really captured is that there are a lot of power outages. You know, we're working on bases. You know, the power power is somewhat unreliable. The conditions are extremely, extremely um, austere. And when Djibouti is going to get up to like 120, maybe even more, that's not even factoring humidity. Um, we're really close to the equator. And so, you know, a cool night would be like 94 degrees. <laughs> um, and and humidity, well, again, the humidity is, is, is incredible. Um, but, you know, to paint a, a little bit of a better picture, that is not, those are not just one-offs. These are things that happen regularly. So when I mentioned that, like, oh, no, I have to, I want to include this, but it's optional, is that the reason why it's so late is because we're just tied up with so many different things. Um, and I needed to get out because there's the eight and a half to nine hour difference um, between East Coast and most, you know, <laughs> halfway around the world. Yeah. And, um, and it was like, oh, you know, I, I just, I, I just would, I could not do anything else other than to just get home, shower, eat, and just, just, just sleep. <laughs> right. No, no worries. That's, I mean, it's real, right? I mean, that's. It's, it is. Yeah. It's, it's not like we have. Yeah. It's not like we have a, bu- a bunch of teammates ready to go, just standing around doing nothing. It's like we're doing things. It's just when, when we have other teams that are overseas that really don't have anywhere else to go to their need escalates to the top and that's when they're yeah, absolutely that you know I, I wouldn't want to be stranded <laughs> right, you know, absolutely. when i need something and <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah the equipment's not working and the, yeah absolutely right 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 <laughs> um so I, I know you've mentioned Djibouti a couple of times yes. in a conversation you are actually due to go there at some point <laughs> correct um Based, basically based on when travel is allowed again, which, you know, because of all things COVID-19, that's not happening right now. But no, that, that was actually very succinct, um, how you described it. Uh, but in fact, yes, that is exactly the situation that, that I'm in. But yes, yeah, so initially when I found out in February, and uh, thank you again for reading the the, the, H, the HEE communicator, that was really good. And, and I want to give props to Justin as well for, for reaching out and wanting to cover that piece, um, uh, Justin Kinney. And, um, but because of these travel restrictions, initially in February, I was scheduled to go in, in late May. Then that got pushed back because in February, that was like, ah, COVID is not going to be a thing in the US. Well, it turns out a month later it was. <laughs> right. And then, <laughs> and then that got pushed towards, all right, we're looking at maybe July. And then as we approached May, April, then it's like, no, we're looking at late June. And <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, like, this is this is nuts. <laughs> and then 
and then as now it's been you just just hold on tight um you know there's gonna be some we're, we're gonna try to see if there's exceptions with um army civilians and other contract personnel mm-hmm. going and um as it is right now my team that's that's scheduled to deploy including my my partner that's she's going to Djibouti with me well she's actually they're actually at CRC right now which is the CONUS replacement center that's when everyone goes before they go overseas they go to El Paso Port, Port Bliss in Texas El Paso and they do all the medicals and, and all the vaccination all that stuff they get it all there so they're there right now they got there last weekend and while I did mine in advance um I'm so I, sh- I along with a few others that should be going out um uh, we should be with him um, at least find out the same time. But okay. as it is right now, there's going to be there's a little there's something in the language or, or that's preventing from executives uh, saying, um, yeah, you know what, we'll give we'll give our contract folks, you know, we'll, we'll get them on board to, for them to fly at the same time as their teammates. Um, that we haven't heard yet, and every day is kind of like, all right, what's the status? Anything? If there's not anything, then we'll just we'll we'll revisit this question tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so de- deployment is deployment is certain. Um, it's just a matter of when. That's really what it comes down to. And for gotcha. me, um, I'd say, hey, as long as you know of the date, I am ready. I've been ready. I'm in the metal boxes. <laughs> I'm prepared for that, as I was, you know, my previous jobs. But um, yeah, and I just stay ready. Um, last question for you, Sean. Um, what brings you joy? Yes. What brings you joy? Um, you know, I. <laughs> I, I think like since being being away um, for some time and basically being on Zoom calls uh, with families, um, I realized that all of this like and and during this, these times of COVID, where travel is a lot more restricted, uh, there's an opportunity for self reflection. And I, I think since like uh, late February, you know, I was you know, I was able to. Be, and, and of course, the social distancing and really being able to sort of drill down and say, all right, what, what and help answer that question is what does bring me joy? Um, I really found out that being with family. Sean Crabb, thank you so much for spending time on Further Together today. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, Michael, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate this. And I look forward to, to listening to more of your podcast and, and getting that word out as well. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.